هذا القرآن يوحدنا لطريق الخير يوجهنا الله تعالى أنزله ورسول الله معلمنا ورسول الله معلمنا بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون يا أيها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلقكم من نفس واحدة وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والأرحام إن الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم أعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما أما بعد فإن أصدق الحديث كتاب الله سبحانه وتعالى وخير الحدي حدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار ثم أما بعد My dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so we're going to be starting off with Imam Nawawi's 40 hadith bidinlahi ta'ala and we'll be doing this for the next four weeks or so bidinlahi ta'ala until Shaykh Hassan comes back to give uh, another reminder bidinlahi ta'ala. Now our journey with Imam Nawawi's 40 hadith, the way we're going to be starting off is going through the introduction of Imam Nawawi's 40 hadith first so we understand where Imam Nawawi is coming from and then we're actually going to get into the hadith. So I'm going to apologize in advance. Today's session is going to be extraordinarily technical. Generally, we have a nice balance of technicality, spirituality, and a bit of fun. But tonight, we have just pretty much technicalities. So be prepared for that in advance, inshallah. So please save your questions for the end. And with the ta'ala, we will get through it. So let us start, with, start off with the introduction that Imam An-Nawi rahimahullah uh, has. So the introduction is up on the screen as you can see and we're going to read through the introduction It's about two and a half pages long and then we'll comment where comments need to be made So he starts off by saying all praises due to Allah the Lord of the worlds The one who sustains the heavens and the earth director of all that is created who sent the messengers May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon all of them to rational beings to guide them and explain the religious laws to them with clear proofs and undeniable arguments I praise him for all of his bounties. I ask him to increase his grace and generosity. I bear witness that there's none worthy of worship except Allah alone who has no partner, the one who subdues the generous, the forgiving. I bear witness that our leader Muhammad is his servant and messenger, his beloved and dear one, the best of all creation. He was honored with the glorious Quran that has been enduring miracle throughout the years. He was also sent with his guiding sunnah that shows the way for those who seek guidance. Our leader Muhammad has been particularized with the characteristic of eloquent and pithy speech and simplicity and ease in the religion. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the other prophets and messengers, all of their families and the rest of the righteous. So you'll notice that Imam Al-Nawi he starts off by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, starting off with this concept, there's three hadith that an individual should be familiar with over here. The hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where it is attributed to him that he said that every important fair that does not begin with the basmalah, then it is cut off and is short. Then it is cut off and is short. Now, while this hadith is very common 
in the writings and on the tongues of the people, this hadith in actuality is very, very weak. This hadith is very, very weak. The second hadith, which states the exact same thing, that any important fear that does not have the mentioning of the praise of Allah, that does not have the hamd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it is cut off in short. This hadith is more authentic than the hadith of the Basmala. This hadith is more authentic than the hadith of the Basmala. And that is why the vast majority of scholars acted upon this hadith, but did not act on the hadith of the Basmala. Then the third hadith is the hadith of where the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said that every khutbah should have a testification to it. For if it does not have the testification to it, then it is like the yadin which is cut off. Then it is like the hand which has been cut off. So this is why you will see that every khutib when he gives his Juma khutbah, when he gives a sermon, he will always say, wa ashadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. This is based upon the hadith of the Prophet Now the question arises, this concept of the khutbah al-hajjah, You'll notice that when the Prophet ﷺ used to begin his sermons, he always used to start off with a set script. That set script is what I started off with today, which starts off with, إِنَّ الْحَمْدِ لِلَّهِ نَحْمَدُهُ وَنَسْتَعِينَهُ وَنَسْتَغْفِرُهُ This is reported in the Sunan of Abi Dawud. And this is something that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ is recorded to have said at the beginning of every khutbah. Meaning that there was not a khutbah that was given, except that the Messenger of Allah ﷺ mentioned this khutbah al-hajjah. Now Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, he recognizes this concept, yet you'll notice that Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah does not begin with this. The reason he does not begin with this is because he mentions in Al-Majmu'ah, his book of fiqh, that the scholars are in agreement that one is not required to begin with khutbah al-hajjah, however it is good if he does so. However it is good if he does so. Number two, is that you notice that Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, he acts upon the hadith that the, every khutbah that does not have a testification in it, then it is like the cut off hand. And that is why he mentions that, and I testify, and I testify. So that is the, 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 you know, the reasoning behind that. Now, something else that we might want to pull out from this is the following three points, bithnillahi ta'ala. Number one is that he refers to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, being given a particular characteristic. And he says, our leader Muhammad has been particularized with the characteristic of eloquent and pithy speech. Now this in the Arabic language is known as Jawami al-Kalim. This is known as Jawami al-Kalim. And what Jawami al-Kalim means is that an individual will speak a few amount of words, but its meanings are very, very vast. And you'll notice that this is one of the objectives of Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah in his collection is that he wanted to collect those narrations of the Prophet ﷺ that prove this very point. So you will notice that the vast majority of hadith that Imam al-Nawi uses are very, very short and to the point. So one of the hadith will say, La darara wa la dirar. Right? A very short hadith that states that we will not harm, nor will you allow harm to be reciprocated to uh, allow it to be reciprocated to you. And you'll find other short hadith that are literally just one sentence long. The hadith of Al-Hasan, where he said, ma yuribuk ila ma la yuribuk. Leave that which is doubtful for that which is not doubtful. And you'll notice that this is one of the gifts that the Messenger of Allah was given, that he was be able to speak such few words, yet in its explanation, volumes were written. Volumes were written. So this is something to emphasize, that from the objectives that Imam al-Nawi has, is that he mentions over here, that he was given Jawami al-Kalim, and he wanted to prove that, that he wanted to prove that. 
Then number two, he mentions simplicity and ease in the religion. Simplicity and ease of the religion. So the second objective that Imam Al-Nawi has in his collection over here is to prove how easy and simple the deen of Islam is. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he did not send a religion that was meant to be overburdensome on the people, but rather it was a religion that was meant to be easy. And you'll notice from the very first hadith, we're introduced to this concept of al-qawaid al-fiqhiyah. Or these are the principles that if you were to study all of fiqh, these are the five reoccurring themes that you would find in them. And one of those principles is al-mashakkatu tajlibu at-taysir. That any time hardship is found in a religious matter, then the, then the sharia itself will come to bring an ease to you. So anytime there's a hardship in the deen, then the religion itself will come to you to make it easy for you. The simplest example being an individual is traveling, then at that time the sharia allows you to shorten and combine your prayers. An individual is traveling, he is not required to fast even if he's traveling in the month of Ramadan. Because a hardship has now arisen and the sharia has come to make things easy. So this is the second thing that Imam al-Nawi came to show, is that this religion of Islam in its fundamentals is very, very easy. So if a person just wants to focus on the fundamentals, he should not have a difficult time. And if a person is having a difficult time with his faith, with his religion, then this is an indication that he's doing something wrong. Then this is an indication that he is doing something wrong. And then the third objective we'll come to see in a bit. So he says, Amma ba'd. And this statement to proceed, Amma ba'd, was something that was used by the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So when the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam would change topics, he would use this statement. So you'll notice that in Khutbatul Hajjah, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam actually uses it twice. Actually uses it twice. So after he moves from the Quranic verses to the Hadith, so he mentions uh, Surah Al-Imran verse 102, then Surah Nisa verse 1, and then the verse from Surah Al-Ahzab, he says, Amabad. So this is to show that we're moving on to a new topic. And then after the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentions um, about the, you know, the worst of affairs being the innovated ones, at the end of that, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would say, Thumma Amabad, and then he would actually begin his khutbah. So this was from the tradition of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that when you dwell into a new topic, you're changing topics, you use the statement of Amabad. And this is something that Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah does over here to indicate that. Now let us start off with the actual commentary of Imam al-Nawi. He says, we have narrated through many chains and various narrations from Ali ibn Abi Talib, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, Abu Darda, Abdullah ibn Amr, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Anas ibn Malik, Abu Huraira, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. May Allah be pleased with all of them that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, whoever preserves from my ummah 40 hadith related to the religion, Allah will then resurrect him in the company of the pious and the scholars. Another narration states, Allah will raise him as an erudite and learned scholar. In the narration from Abu Darda, it is stated, on the day of resurrection, I will be an intercessor and witness for him. In the narration of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, it is stated that the Messenger of Allah stated, it will be said to him, enter paradise through any door that you wish. In the narration of Ibn Umar, one finds the words, he will be recorded among the company of the scholars and will be resurrected in the company of the martyrs. However, the scholars of hadith agree that although this hadith has numerous chains, it is weak. And then the, the, the commentator states that hence it cannot be used as a proof in the sharia. Now here we want to comment. 
This concept of compiling books that have 40 hadith in them, this is the foundation for it. So you'll notice that a lot of the scholars, and in the next slide we'll mention some of those scholars, they wrote books that had 40 hadith in them. And one of the motivations behind that was the hadith that were, were mentioned over here. Now looking at all of these hadith, while Imam Nawi mentions that these hadith are weak, in reality when you look at these hadith and these narrations, you will see they actually vary from very weak to fabricated. Very weak to fabricated. And this is where we're going to get into our introduction of understanding what categorizes an authentic hadith and what are the categorizations of hadith? What are the categorizations of hadith in terms of authenticity and being unauthentic? So with that having been said, let us start off with what are the categorizations of hadith? The categorizations of hadith are seven. There are seven categorizations of hadith in terms of that which is authentic and that which is not authentic. Now we're going to mention seven over here today just as a primer, as an introduction. But when you will study hadith even more, you'll notice that not all the scholars agreed on these classifications, but we'll go with what the majority have stated. So a hadith in terms of its authenticity and non-authenticity will fall under seven categories. Four of them are acceptable and three of them are not acceptable. So four of them are acceptable and three of them are not acceptable. So the four that are acceptable, the highest, the highest within of itself is what they call sahih, is that which is authentic, is that which is authentic. Then number two is what they call sahih li ghayrihi, sahih li ghayrihi, means that this hadith within of itself is not sahih, but due to secondary proofs, it will now be considered as sahih. Due to secondary proofs, it will now be considered as sahih. Then number three is hasan. So this hadith is acceptable. It's not at the level of sahih, but it is acceptable within of itself. And then the fourth and last category is hasan li ghayrihi. Hasan li ghayrihi. And what hasan li ghayrihi means that in actuality the hadith is not authentic, but due to supporting evidences, it has now become authentic. Due to supporting evidences, has now become authentic. So those are the four classifications of a hadith which is acceptable. Then you have three classifications of hadith that are not acceptable. And those are da'if, da'if jiddan, and mawdu'ah. So they are hadith which are weak, hadith which are very weak, and then the hadith which are fabricated. Hadith which are fabricated. So now let us define these in more detail. What does it mean for a hadith to actually be authentic? What does it mean for a hadith to actually be authentic? So when we talk about a hadith being authentic, there are five conditions that need to be met. There are five conditions that need to be met. Condition number one is adalatul ruwat. Sorry, uh, condition number one is ittisal al-sanad. Is ittisal al-sanad. And what ittisal al-sanad means is that from the Prophet sallallahu till the person narrating the hadith, there is a continuous chain of narration. So if you understand the generations in Islam, you have the generation of the Prophet, which are the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Then you have the generation after them, which is the Tabi'een, and then after them are the Atba'at Tabi'een. So in each of these generations, you need to have at least one narrator to keep the chain connected. You need to have the, at least the one narrator in each generation to keep the chain connected. And in reality, you will see that each generation actually had two or three individuals from that generation to keep the chain narrated, to, to keep the chain continuous. Now the shortest chain that is inside Sahih al-Bukhari 
is inside Sahih al-Bukhari, is three people. So between the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and Imam al-Bukhari is three people. So you'll notice that it was even possible that to cover the span of something like 250 years, 250 years, that um, you know it could be done with three individuals, as we see inside Sahih al-Bukhari. So that is what we call Ittisal al-Sanat. Number two, what we call Adalatul Ruwat. Adalatul Ruwat. And Adalatul Ruwat is the trustworthiness of the narrators. The trustworthiness of the narrators. And this trustworthiness is divided into two categories. It is divided into two categories. Category number one is in terms of their deen, in terms of their actual faith. So this individual should not be known to commit any open sin, and this individual should not be known for any heresy. So the narrator should not be known for openly committing sin, nor should he be known for committing any form of heresy. Nor should he be known for committing any form of heresy. A third thing that scholars mention in terms of Adalat or Rawat is what they call Al-Maru'ah. What they call Al-Maru'ah. And by Al-Maru'ah, they mean that he kept an appearance and kept a conduct that was acceptable. He kept a conduct that was acceptable. Now you'll notice that the scholars of Hadith, they actually differed on different types of Maru'ah. So one of the scholars of Hadith that was the most strict on Maru'ah was the scholar known by the name of Shu'ba ibn Hajjaj. Shu'ba ibn Hajjaj. And Shu'ba ibn Hajjaj, when he used to interact with his students, if he even saw them riding upon a donkey that used to bounce up and down, if the donkey used to bounce up and down, he would tell them that today you're not allowed learning hadith from me because this goes against maru'ah. So if he, they saw like something that was abnormal, something that wasn't considered good conduct, then they would disqualify them from narrating hadith. They would disqualify them from narrating hadith. Now this third concept of maru'ah, it doesn't have any set guidelines. And this is, you know, it would differ from one scholar to the other. And the general, you know, understanding of it is that a person should not openly oppose the culture that he is a part of. So as long as it is not in opposition to the Sharia, he should actually go according to the culture that he is a part of. This is in terms of the way that they eat, the way that they dress, the way that they walk. He should be a part of that culture rather than opposing it. So this is Adalatul Ruat. So number three is Tam al-Dabt. Tam al-Dabt. And Tam al-Dabt means perfect and complete precision. Perfect and complete precision. So the scholar or the narrator that is narrating the hadith, he should be known that he should narrate hadith just as he heard them. And these are actually tested that when an individual narrates a hadith, is there another individual that can collaborate this hadith? That will narrate it in the exact same manner, using the exact same wordings? This is how they check it out. So now if a person has tam al-dab, that perfect and complete precision, then this hadith will be known as a hadith which is sahih. However, if an individual does not have perfect and complete precision, then this is when a hadith will start to vary. Either go into the category of hasan, or it will go into the very first category of weak. So the very first category of da'if, or to the category of hasan, depending on his level of precision. So you'll notice that the first thing that will make a hadith weak is the precision of the narrator. If he is not precise, then this, the quality of the hadith will actually go down. And this is what tam al-dabt actually means. Then the fourth condition of a hadith being authentic is adam al-shuduth. That there should be no apparent contradictions between this hadith and other texts. 
So the hadith should not contradict another hadith, nor should it contradict the Quran. And more importantly, it shouldn't contradict the narration of another narrator. So two people are narrating the same hadith, there should be no ittirab, there should be no opposition or contradiction in the hadith itself. And that is what adam al-shuduth or lack of contradiction means. And then number five, number five is adamu illatin qadiha. Adamu illatin qadiha. And adamu illatin qadiha, what this means is that there should be no hidden defect in the hadith which is harmful to the hadith, which is harmful to the hadith. So can we think of an example where you will have a defect in the hadith that is not harmful? And the answer to that is yes. There are certain defects that will take place inside of hadith which are not harmful to the hadith. So for example, you'll notice that sometimes a narrator will narrate, will say, حدثنا Sufyan. حدثنا Sufyan. So if he's from the second generation, he's referring to either Sufyan al-Thawri or Sufyan ibn Uyayna. And both of them are great imams of hadith. So while a person may not be sure which Sufyan he's referring to, either Sufyan is acceptable because they're both narrators of hadith. And this works the same way with a narrator by the name of Ibn Dinar. So you'll find many scholars by the name of Ibn Dinar. You have Ab Abdullah Ibn Dinar, you know, Amr Ibn Dinar, Malik Ibn Dinar, all of these Ibn Dinar, they're all trustworthy and imams of hadith. So if he uses Ibn Dinar, even though an individual may not be sure, this is a defect which is not harmful to the hadith, which is not harmful to the hadith. So now let's look at a defect that is harmful to the hadith. Let's look at a defect that is harmful to the hadith. So in the introduction of Sahih Muslim, Imam Muslim rahimahullah, he mentions the hadith of the seven that will be shaded under the shade of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And who can remind me who are the seven that will be shaded under the shade of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the Day of Judgment? Go ahead. <laughs> I have no idea what that is referring to. Allah knows best. That's not one of the narrations that I'm familiar with. Go ahead. A just ruler. Excellent. So that's one. We have six more to go. Go ahead. Excellent. So two people who love each other for the sake of Allah. Who's number three? Go ahead. Excellent. So an individual who's alone and remembers Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his eyes start to flood with tears. That's three. You're mixing two of them up. So the youth that, raises it, that is raised in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's number four. And we'll take number five from that. And an individual whose heart is attached to the masjid, that's five. Now we're looking for six and seven. Go ahead. No, good attempt, but that's not it. Excellent. So a man that is seduced and he says, I fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now we're left with the seventh one. This is always like the toughest one. Excellent. What's, what's the actual point that is mentioned? Which hand is, is, does not know that? The right hand gave, right? So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa mentions in the seventh point, رَجُلٌ تَصَدَّقَ بِصَدَقَةٍ فَأَخْفَاهَا حَتَّى لَا تَعْلَمُ شِمَالُهُ مَا تُنْفِقُ يَمِينُهُ That an individual gives charity so secretly that his left hand does not know what his right hand gave. That is how secretive it is. Now this is how the vast majority of narrators narrated this hadith. Guys, quiet down. This is how the vast majority of narrators narrated this hadith. Imam Muslim, rahimahullah, in his introduction, he brings the exact opposite. 
He says, رَجُلٌ تَصَدَّقَ بِالصَّدَقَةٍ فَأَخْفَاحَ حَتَّى لَا تَعْلَمُ يَمِينُهُ مَا تُنْفِقُ شِمَالُهُ That an individual, he gives charity so secretly that his right hand does not know what his left hand gave. So now this type of defect in the hadith, it opposes the vast majority of narrations and this becomes a defect which is harmful. Because the basis of this hadith now can become that it is permissible for you to give charity with your left hand. And this becomes a defect which is harmful to the hadith. Because the actual message is that the uh, charity should be given with the right hand and it should be given in secrecy, in you know the utmost sincerity when it is secret. But now that you mention the left hand, it changes the meaning of the hadith altogether. So this would be a form of a hadith which is defective, that it has a defect in it that makes it defective. So not the whole hadith is defective now, but only this section of the hadith will become defective. So we go with the way of the majority that this charity should be given by the right hand so secretly that the left hand does not know what it gave. So those are the five conditions for a hadith to be considered sahih. And we mentioned that a hadith will move from sahih to hasan based upon the type of precision an individual had. Based upon the type of precision the individual had. Now, in order for a hadith to become hasan li ghayrihi, in order for a hadith to become hasan li ghayrihi, then they have to introduce a sixth condition. They have to introduce a sixth condition. And that is that there should be supporting narrations. There be, should be supporting narrations. And this is not only for Hassan Li but for Sahih Li as well. Now let us quickly review everything that we've taken, because I'm seeing a lot of dead faces. So the first thing I'm going to ask are what are the seven categories of authenticity and weakness? What are the seven categories of authenticity and weakness? Okay. 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 Uh huh. Uh-huh. Excellent. So those are the seven. Now let's comment on these a bit more. So now we've mentioned how a hadith becomes weak is when you talk about precision. Now the concept comes, how does a hadith become very weak and when does it become fabricated? When does it become fabricated? A hadith can become very weak when we start talking about the adala of the ruat, when we start talking about the trustworthiness of the narrators. So if an individual was known to be a heretic, then this hadith would become considered very weak. Likewise, when an individual is known to be a liar, he's known to fabricate hadith, this is when the hadith becomes fabricated. This is when the hadith becomes fabricated. So now you understand some basic conditions in terms of what is needed for a hadith to be authentic and acceptable and why you know, it is such a fundamental pillar of our deen. That there was such a you know, high level of scrutiny that was being applied to the, to the narrations of the Prophet ﷺ that it was impossible for those hadith to be forged or to be made up. Because the scholars of hadith scrutinized it to such a degree. Imam al-Bukhari he had the highest level of scrutiny. That he would have, he made it a condition that not only did the narrators need to be proven to have lived at the same time, what he called al-mu'asara, that they needed to be proven that these narrators lived at the same time. He actually made it a condition that we need to be able to prove that there was a possibility of these narrators actually meeting. So he would go into the books of Tariq, if these scholars were not in Baghdad or not in Basra or not in Asham at the same time and could not be proven, then he would not accept those hadith. And this is why you see that through these strict conditions, something like Sahih al-Bukhari 
become such a, you know, luminary masterpiece. As you'll come to see, Imam An-Nawi rahimahullah even recognizes it, that it is the most authentic book written by man. It is the most authentic book written by man due to the conditions that Imam Al-Bukhari put. Now the second question I want to ask, what are the conditions that are required for hadith to be authentic? What are the conditions that are required for hadith to be authentic? Who's going to tell me those conditions? Go ahead. <coughs> Right, excellent. So let me just stop you over here. This chain of narration, if the chain of narration is cut off, someone is missing in the chain of narration, what will happen to this hadith? Will it become weak or will it become very weak or will it become fabricated? The general case scenario is that it will become very weak or fabricated, depending on if we're able to identify who the missing link is or not. So it will go from very weak to fabricated. That is the general case scenario. That is the general case scenario. What is the second condition? If you wrote it down, it's fine. You can read from your notes. It's about the narrators themselves. So the first condition was that it should be a continuous chain. Now what about, what do we need to know about the narrators? They should be trustworthy. Excellent. This is what we called Adalatul Ruwat. And Adalatul Ruwat, we said, had three things related to it. What were the three things that are related to Adalatul Ruwat? Who remembers them? Okay, so they need to be upright in their deen. Keep acceptable conduct. Keep acceptable conduct. And then what was the third one? I think maybe you combined two of them together. Okay, so in terms of the deen, they should not be any form of heresy. They shouldn't commit open sin. And the third thing, they should keep good conduct. They should keep good conduct, maru'ah. That is the third one. So that is adalat ruwat Then number three, we mentioned tam dabt Actually, I shouldn't have mentioned that. That was you guys. So that is condition number three. You're supposed to have perfect and complete precision. What was condition number four? Go ahead. So there should be no, no contradiction. Not contradiction against the Quran, not other hadith, nor even against other narrators who are stronger narrators, who are stronger narrators. And then the fifth and last condition. Go ahead. Okay, excellent. Now, are, can there be defects in the hadith that do not harm the hadith? Is that possible? So what is an example of something like that? You don't need to give me specifics, just give me the general idea. Okay, so what would be an example of this though? An example of Not an example of the hadith, an example of a defect that doesn't harm the hadith. <coughs> no? No worries. Brother in the back, go ahead. Um, no, no. Go ahead. Excellent. So if you have names that are interchanged, and both of those names are actually trustworthy. So someone like Sufyan ibn Uyayna, Sufyan al-Thawri, and Ibn Dinar, then these are all trustworthy. Excellent. So that is the fifth, that there should be no hidden defects. There should be no hidden defects. Now we move on to the next slide. We move on to the next slide. Actually, we are missing something here. Hold on. Sorry? The sixth condition is that if you want to get to Sahih li ghairihi or Hassan li ghairihi, then there need to be supporting evidences. There need to be supporting evidences. 
Um, okay, there's a slide that is actually missing here. Or actually, no. Hold on. Yeah, so just a change up of the slides. Okay, so this is the next slide. The scholars have compiled innumerable works of nature, collections of 40 hadith. The first one that I know of uh, who compiled such a work was Abdullah ibn Mubarak Atabi. After him came Ibn Aslam At-Tusi, a pious scholar. Then came Al-Hassan ibn Sufyan Al-Nasai, and Abu Bakr Al-Ajurri, and Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Ibrahim Al-Asfahani, Al-Darakutni, Al-Hakim, Abu Nu'aym, Abu Abdurrahman Al-Sulami, Abu Sa'id Al-Malini, Abu Uthman Al-Sabuni, Abdullah ibn Muhammad Al-Ansari, Abu Bakr Al-Bayhaqi, and countless others, both from the earlier and later times. I have turned to Allah for guidance and prayed to Him while compiling these 40 hadith following the example of those Imams and guardians of Islam. The scholars have, have agreed that it is permissible to act in accordance with weak hadith that deal with virtuous of good deeds, i.e. not weak hadith that deal with rulings, ahkam or acts of worship. Nonetheless, given the fact I have not simply relied upon the, that weak hadith mentioned above in compiling this work, instead I'm following the statement of the Prophet ﷺ found in an authentic hadith, let him who was present amongst you inform those who are absent. The Prophet ﷺ also said, may Allah make radiant the man who has heard what I said, preserved it in his memory and, convert, and conveyed it in the way that he heard it and conveyed it that he heard it. So now this leads us to a further discussion, and that further discussion is that what is the ruling on acting upon weak hadith? What is the ruling on acting upon weak hadith? And the scholars of Islam differed into three different camps on this. This differed into three different camps. Camp number one is what is attributed to Imam Ahmad and Abu Dawud. Imam Ahmad and Abu Dawud. And this is without any conditions, a weak hadith can be acted upon. A weak hadith can be acted upon. So you find from the usul of the madhab of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he mentions that a weak hadith is more beloved to me than a person's personal opinion. A weak hadith is more beloved to me than a person's personal opinion. Now, the statement from Imam Ahmad rahimahullah is authentic. However, the scholars have said its understanding is what is misunderstood. So scholars have misunderstood this hadith. So the first, this, sorry, this statement of Imam Ahmad. So the first way it was misunderstood is that Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he says, I prefer the weak hadith over al-qiyas al-fasid, meaning a personal opinion that is illogical in its deduction. That is illog illogical in its deduction. Now, very few scholars actually held this interpretation. Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he goes to category number two. He goes to category number two. He says the way that Imam Ahmad rahimahullah's statement is meant to be understood, that weak hadith is more beloved to me than personal opinion, is the fact that before Imam Tirmidhi rahimahullah came along, there was only two categorizations of hadith. There was only two categorizations of hadith. There was sahih, and then everything else was da'if. There was sahih, and everything else was da'if. So if you just learned the seven right now, we mentioned that four of them are authentic and three of them are not acceptable, correct? In the time of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, prior to the time of a tirmidhi they used to have only one category of acceptability, which was sahih. And then in terms of weak narrations, all of the other six would fall under that. All of the other six would fall under that. So Ibn Taymiyyah is saying that when Imam Ahmad mentions that a hadith is weak, 
It does not mean the way weak we understand it after Imam Tirmidhi came along. But rather, included in his definition of weak is that hadith which is Hassan and Hassan li ghayrihi. So when Imam Ahmed is mentioning that I prefer the weak hadith over personal, uh, over logical deduction, he is saying that I prefer the hadith which is Hassan and Hassan li ghayrihi over that of Qiyas. So that is what the statement is actually meaning. So even though it is authentically attributed to Imam Ahmad, it seems that scholars did not understand the statement of Imam Ahmad properly. Did not understand the statement of Imam Ahmad properly. And the same thing with Abu Dawud. Same thing with Abu Dawud. So while this opinion is actually portrayed, this opinion doesn't actually exist. Do you guys understand that? So this opinion is attributed to Imam Ahmad and Abu Dawud, but this opinion actually was not held by them. The way that we are meant to understand it, the way that we are meant to understand it. Then camp number two. This is the camp of the majority of scholars. So you'll notice that Imam Nawi rahimahullah, he says that the scholars are in agreement that you can act upon hadith, or that you can act upon weak hadith. So he says the scholars have agreed that it is permissible to act in accordance with weak hadith. Now this claim of Imam Nawi rahimahullah, that there is ijma on this issue, is actually incorrect. The scholars aren't in agreement on this. So the vast majority of scholars, they said that you can act upon weak hadith, however, with conditions, with conditions. And there's three conditions that everyone agreed upon, and there's two conditions that the scholars differed over. So there's three conditions that everyone agreed upon, and then two uh, conditions that they differed upon. Now when he mentioned that three conditions that everyone agreed upon, this is from the camp that said you can act upon weak hadith. This is from the camp that said you can act upon weak hadith. They all agreed upon these three conditions. Number one is that this hadith must not be extremely weak. Number one, this hadith must not be extremely weak. So its level of weakness should only go up to da'if and should not reach da'if jiddan or mawdu'ah. Then number two is that the hadith that is being used should not be used to promote something that does not already have a foundation in the deen. So this hadith should not be used that to establish something that does not have a foundation in the deen. Now the most common example over here that we can bring up is the concept of Salatul Tasbih. The concept of Salatul Tasbih. So now when you look at the hadith itself, it seems accurate that this hadith is weak. However, you will see that there is a large number of scholars that actually acted upon this hadith. From them was Abdullah ibn Mubarak. So now, why did they do this? Because the concept of salah is already established. And the virtues of the statement that an individual will say, Subhanallah, walhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah, wallahu akbar, wa la hawla, wa la quwata illa billah. This statement, its virtues are found in other hadith. So now, this concept of salatul tasbih is not an actual new concept. There's already a foundation of it in the deen, and that is why they allowed acting upon it, and that is what number two is referring to. So now let's think of an example where, let's just say for argument's sake, there is a hadith which is not very weak, but it is establishing a new meaning. So I'll tell you something interesting that happened the other day. So I come home from my flight, and my two daughters, we have Alia and Aisha. Alia is just turning five and Aisha is going to be turning four soon, inshallah. And there's a nasheed playing in the background that is talking about the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you have Aisha doing like a whirling dervish. She's just like spinning around. 
And then you have Alia, she's beating on the pants on the floor. And I was like, subhanAllah, you know, I leave for two weeks and we have like a Sufi party in my house now, mashallah. <laughs> so now the hadith that talk about, you know, dancing as an act of ibadah. Dancing as an act of ibadah. Right? So now all of these narrations, let's just say, if we were to argue for argument's sake, that they were authentic, that there was a weakness in them that was, didn't make them extremely weak, you know, let's just use that for argument's sake. But now let us look at the second condition. Is this establishing something new in the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Meaning that is there a basis for this in the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That a person can dance to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the answer to that is no. That there's no other evidence that is found in the Quran and the Sunnah that a person can use dancing as a way of getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is something that goes against the foundation that the sharia came with. It goes against the foundation that the sharia came with. So that is number two. Number three, this is a very interesting one. They said that the person that is doing this act should not expect any reward for doing this. He should not expect any reward for doing this. But rather he's doing it out of safety. Out of safety. What did they mean by this condition? They said that a lot of these narrations will mention specific virtues. They'll mention specific virtues. A person doing them should not aim for the virtue but he should do it with the intention that if the Prophet ﷺ did this, I want to keep the sunnah alive. Out of safety of preserving the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are the three conditions that the scholars who said you can act upon a weak hadith stipulated. These are the three conditions that need to be met. Number one, it shouldn't be very weak. Number two, is that it shouldn't establish a new foundation in the deen or oppose a foundation that has already been set. And number three, is that a person should not expect reward from acting upon this, but rather should do this for the sake of safety in terms of uh, protecting the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now something that's important to understand here, that I'll mention just for the sake of clarity, is that when the scholars allowed the acting upon weak hadith, it was not in rulings pertaining to aqidah or ahkam. Meaning that these aren't rulings pertaining to detailed fiqh, nor are they pertaining to our faith and theology. But rather, this is just pertaining to what they call fadail a'mal. Fadail a'mal, virtuous deeds. Virtuous deeds. Now let us look at the two conditions that the scholars differed over. Number one, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar rahimahullah, he mentions that the individual that acts upon a weak hadith should not do so in public. He should not do so in public. Lest that people follow him in this and think that it is an established sunnah. So he mentions that acting upon a weak hadith should not be done in public, but this is something that you do in the privacy of your own home. That this should be done in the privacy of your own home. And the next condition, and the last condition that we'll mention, is that it should not be in contradiction to any other act. It should not be in contradiction to any other act. Now particularly pertaining to this point, the scholar said that the reason why we didn't mention this condition is because it is already understood that anything that came to oppose the sharia will be rejected right away. So there was no need to mention it, but some of the scholars differed over it. They differed over it. Now let us move on to camp number three. Let us move on to camp number three. And camp number three stated that you're not allowed acting upon weak hadith altogether. You're not allowed acting upon weak hadith altogether. Now this is a very important point to state that in any science when you study it, you always want to go to the specialists of that field. You always want to go to the specialists of that field. So right now when we're talking about hadith, 
You want to go to what the specialists of hadith actually have to say and mention about it. Rather than going to scholars of usul al-fiqh, rather than going to scholars of fiqh, we want to see what the scholars of hadith actually have to say. Now what's interesting is that category number three, in actuality, are the scholars of hadith. So you have the likes of Imam al-Bukhari, you have the likes of Imam Muslim, the likes of Abu Hatim al-Razi, and Ibn Abi Hatim. All of these scholars, they said that the weak hadith cannot be acted upon. Likewise, from them was the Shawkani, Ibn Hazm, uh, Ibn al-Arabi al-Maliki. All of these scholars said that you can't act upon weak hadith whatsoever. Their understanding of it is that there's so many authentic narrations, there's no need to look at the weak narrations. And this is what Imam Muslim rahimahullah, explicitly mentions in his introduction. That the authentic narrations are so many, there's no need to go to the weak narrations. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, it seems that the third opinion is the strongest. The third opinion is the strongest. Because we always want to hold the opinion of the specialists in that field. And this is the opinion of the specialists. This is the opinion of the specialists. Now, Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, this is what he concludes to as well. Even though he allows the acting upon weak hadith in virtuous deeds, he says the reason why I'm compiling these 40 narrations is because of what the Messenger of Allah said in authentic hadith. That let those of you who are present inform those who are absent. Meaning that the Messenger of Allah is saying that when you hear something from the Messenger of Allah, you should convey it to the people who did not hear it. And likewise, the hadith of the Messenger of Allah where he said, May Allah make radiant the man who has heard what I have said, preserved it in his memory, and conveyed it in the way that he heard it. So meaning that now when you hear hadith, you have a responsibility of preserving the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you preserve it just the way that you heard it and you narrate it to the people. So you spread the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is why Imam al-Nawi is actually doing it. And then the second reason why Imam al-Nawi is doing it is because of the tradition of the scholars. That the scholars had this tradition of compiling 40 hadith, and that is why Imam al-Nawi is doing it. So now let us conclude with this last slide. Scholars have compiled 40 hadith on faith uh, and belief, on practical matters, on jihad, on austerity, on etiquette, and even on sermons. All of these collections were concerning righteous aims. May Allah be pleased with those who sought them. However, I have found it best to collect together 40 hadith, which are more important than all of these. These 40 hadith incorporate all of these separate topics. In fact, each hadith is by itself a great general precept from the foundations of the religion. Some scholars state that all of Islam revolves around this hadith. Some have said about a particular hadith that they are one half of Islam, one third of Islam, and so on and so forth. I've committed myself to including only authentic hadith, Sahih or Hassan, in these 40 hadith. The majority of them are from Sahih al-Bukhari or Sahih Muslim. I've mentioned them without their chain of narrators in order for it to be easier to memorize them and thus more people will be able to benefit from them, Allah willing. After the hadith, I included a section on the meanings of the obscure expressions found in the hadith. Everyone who desires and looks forward to the hereafter must be familiar with these hadith because they cover the most important aspects of the religion and offer direction to all forms of obedience of Allah. This is clear to anyone who ponders these hadith. I rely upon Allah and entrust my affair only to Him. To Him is all praise and grace. From Him is guidance and protection from error. So now, we were talking about the objectives that Imam al-Nawi had. 
And here we get to the third objective. The third objective is to present the complete picture of Islam. To present the complete picture of Islam. So when a person wanted to know, you know, what is Islam all about? Imam Nawawi rahimahullah, he preserved it in his 40 hadith. Likewise, Imam Nawawi rahimahullah, he mentions that I only stuck to the authentic narrations. I only stuck to the authentic narrations. Now this is something, you know, we'll dispute as we cover the hadith bidinahi ta'ala, that not all the hadith that are mentioned by Imam Nawawi are you know, of the highest level of authenticity. And this is something we will debate later on as we get to those hadith bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. Now, the last thing that we'll mention over here is that Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, he mentions about some of these hadith, they were considered half of Islam and one third of Islam and so on and so forth. And the absolute foundation of this concept of hadith being considered half of Islam or a third of Islam is found in the very first hadith which is the hadith of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu where he says that I heard the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa say that actions are judged by motives so each man will have what he intended. Thus he whose migration was to Allah and his messenger, his migration is to Allah and his messenger. But he whose migration was for some worldly thing that he might gain or for a wife he might marry, his migration is to that which he migrated. Narrated by Al-Bukhari and by Muslim. Now what we're going to conclude tonight's session with ta'ala is two things. Number one is the sabab of al-wurud of this hadith. Why was this hadith actually brought forth? And number two is the miraculous nature of the chain of narrators of this hadith. So let us start off with sabab al-wurud. So when you talk about Quran, there are reasons of revelation why verses were sent down. So a man came to the Messenger of Allah and the Messenger of Allah turned away from him so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down Abasa wa Tawalla. So this is known as Asbab al-Nuzul. Now when you come to hadith, there is a reason why the Messenger of Allah sallallahu would mention particular hadith. And this in the Arabic language is known as Sabab al-Wurud. Why was the hadith actually brought forth? Now here's an interesting case. That why was this hadith brought forth? The reason behind this is, there was a woman in Medina by the name of Umm Qais. There was a woman in Medina by the name of Umm Qais. And she made it a condition that whoever, that the individual that wanted to marry her, he had to migrate from Mecca to Medina. Now subhanAllah, this is, you see what happens over here. When a man becomes completely subservient to his wife, he actually loses his name altogether. This individual is not known by his name, but now he is only known as Muhajir Umm Qais. The one that made hijrah for Umm Qais. <laughs> and this was the reason of revelation that some of the scholars mentioned. That some of the scholars mentioned. That the reason why the Messenger of Allah said this narration was about this man that he migrated from Mecca to Medina, not for the sake of making hijrah, but for the sake of marrying a woman. And that is why the last part of, of this hadith is about marrying a woman. So whoever intended to migrate for the sake of Allah, it's for the sake of Allah. But whoever intended to migrate for the sake of a woman, then that is what it is for. Commenting on this, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar and Al-Hafidh ibn Rajab, they said that while this story is authentic, it's mentioned in the Sunan of Sayyid ibn Mansur and Al-Tabarani, they said while it is authentic in this narration, there's nothing to actually prove that this story has anything to do with the hadith. There's nothing to actually prove that the story has anything to do with the hadith. So in actuality, we don't know what the sabab of wurud was, but this is what the scholars mention. Number two, we want to look at the chain of narrators. And subhanAllah, I remember that when I came across this, this is like something that 
really increased my faith, not only like increased my iman generally, but specifically in the science of hadith. To know that there were such geniuses in our ummah that were able to do such things. So now you'll notice that growing up, from my time at least, you know, one of the most famous books that came about, you know, putting Twilight aside, putting, you know, the, the Hobbit trilogy aside, and what was the third one? The Harry Potter series aside, this is like after my time, these are all after my time. In my time we had like this concept of the Da Vinci Code. That was like the famous book that, you know, that was like the top selling book, nothing got better than that. And then it was such a big phenomenon that there's like all of these hidden secrets that were filled with genius that Dan Brown came up with. But in reality, subhanAllah, when you study Sahih al-Bukhari, you'll notice that Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah was a bigger genius than all of them. So Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, he mentions this hadith as the very first hadith inside Sahih al-Bukhari. He mentions this as the very first hadith inside Sahih al-Bukhari. In the book known as Kitab al-Wahi. Kitab al-Wahi. Okay, the book of Revelation. So now a person looks at this hadith and he says, what on earth does this hadith have to do with Revelation? Why is Imam al-Bukhari mentioning this? So a scapegoat that the general scholars took was that Imam al-Bukhari, the reason why he mentions this hadith is because this hadith in actuality has nothing to do with Kitab al-Wahi. But the reason why it's mentioned in Kitab al-Wahi is because Imam al-Bukhari wanted to start off Sahih al-Bukhari reminding himself and the reader that purify your intention before you read this book. Now that seems like something very noble and very good. And mashallah, for the most part that is, it is accurate. But when you study the Sahih al-Bukhari, the way Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar did, you'll notice that Imam al-Bukhari rahimullah did not do things for no reason whatsoever. So I want us to take a look at the chain of narration that Imam al-Bukhari brings for this hadith. The chain of narration that Imam al-Bukhari brings for this hadith. So Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, let's start off from the Messenger of Allah to Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. To Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. And for those of you that have pen and paper and something to write with, please write these down so that you can mention, you remember this fa'idah. So it was Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. To Al-Qama ibn Waqqas. To Al-Qama ibn Waqqas. To Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi. To Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi. To Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari. To Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari. Now up until this point, you only have one person narrating it after the other. So in this chain, the, everyone has to go through this chain. There's no other chain for this hadith except up until Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari. Then from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, You'll see that Yahya ibn Sayyid al-Ansari, he narrated it to over 400 people. So from Yahya ibn Sayyid al-Ansari, you have 400 different narrators. But before Yahya ibn Sayyid al-Ansari, you only have one narrator each. This is the first interesting thing over here. Then, from Yahya ibn Sayyid al-Ansari, you get Sufyan ibn Uyayna. You get Sufyan ibn Uyayna. And then from Sufyan ibn Uyayna, you get the last individual, who was known as Al-Humaydi. He was known as Al-Humaydi, whose actual name was Abdullah ibn Zubair. Abdullah ibn Zubair, not the Sahabi. This is a separate Abdullah ibn Zubair. So now, I want us to take a look at this chain of narration. This chain of narration. You have Umar ibn Khattab, Al-Qab ibn Waqqas, Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Taymi, Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, and that's all singular. And then from there it splits off, and then, Imam al-Bukhari, out of the 400 different chains he could have chosen, he chose the following chain. 
He chose from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari to Sufyan ibn Uyayna to uh, Abdullah ibn Zubair who is known as Al-Humaydi to Imam al-Bukhari, to Imam al-Bukhari. Now, we mentioned that this hadith is mentioned in Kitab al-Wahi. It's mentioned in Kitab al-Wahi. So where was Umar ibn Khattab from? He was from Mecca, migrated to Medina. Al-Qab ibn Waqas from Medina. Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi from Medina. Then Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari from Medina. Then from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, you get Sufyan ibn Uyayna, who was from Mecca and Medina. Then from Sufyan ibn Uyayna, you get Abdullah ibn Zubair al-Humaydi, who was Makki. And on top of that, he was from the Quraysh. He was Qurashi as well. So, number one, the first thing that you notice is that all the narrators from this hadith, none of them are from Asham, none of them are from Kufa, or from Basra, or from Baghdad. They're all from the lands of Wahi. They're all from the lands of Wahi, from Mecca and from Medina. So it shows you the genius of Imam al-Bukhari that in Kitab al-Wahi, the very first chain of narration he uses, all of the narrators are from the lands of Wahi. And that is why he used this hadith in this with this chain inside Kitab al-Wahi. Number two, is that why, was there a reason why Imam al-Bukhari chose Abdullah bin Zubair al-Humaydi? And the answer to that is yes as well. Because in this different hadith mentioned inside Sahih al-Bukhari, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa said, قَدِّمُوا الْقُرَيْشِ They give the Quraysh preference. So out of all of his teachers that narrated this hadith to Imam al-Bukhari, Imam al-Bukhari chose al-Humaydi because he wanted to fulfill the command of the Messenger of Allah to give preference to the Quraysh. So the very first hadith that is mentioned inside Sahih al-Bukhari, he gave preference to his teacher who was from the Quraysh. Who was from the Quraysh. So this shows you the genius that Imam al-Bukhari had behind mentioning this hadith inside Kitab al-Wahi. And bithillahi ta'ala, from next week, we will start off by discussing this very first hadith of innam al-a'malu bin niyat in terms of the lessons that we can derive from it. Bithillahi ta'ala, wallahu ta'ala a'lam, wa sallallahu wa sallam, wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We'll take three questions, bithillahi ta'ala. Go ahead. Heresy, yes. Right. Uh, now, uh, what type of heresy? Uh, I mean, uh, was there a different type of heresy at that time, or was, for example, is it like something that would take you out of Islam only, or even a little bit like, you know, you considered Uthman better, uh, Ali better than Uthman? All right. Excellent. So the type of heresy that the scholars were very clear about is that he should not be a caller to his heresy. So even if it was a minor heresy or a major heresy, as long as he's not a caller to his heresy they would be very easy and lax with him. So you have the likes of Qatada. You know, Qatada, he was from the segregation, from the Tabi'in, but he had issues with Qadr. Even though he's an Imam of Hadith, an Imam of Tafsir, he had these issues with Qadr. Yet they still considered him an Imam because he wasn't a caller to his, his innovation. Likewise, um, what's the name I'm thinking of? Contemporary of Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah. He, meant, he married a Shia woman. He married a Shia woman. And because of that, he started having Shia beliefs. Khariji. Sorry? Khariji no, no, Shia. She was from the Shia. He was from Yemen. Uh, Abdul Razak al-San'ani. Abdul Razak al-San'ani. He, he was, you know, on the Sunnah his whole life. Then he meets this beautiful woman from Yemen, mashallah. 
and he starts developing Shia beliefs. But the key thing was he didn't start calling to those Shia beliefs. So as long as he didn't call to the Shia beliefs, they were very easy going with him. So that was the key thing. As long as he wasn't a caller to his beliefs, they were fine with him. Whether it was major or minor, as long as it was gayru mukaffara. As long as it was gayru mukaffara. Wallahu ta'ala ala. Sure. So let's go all the way back. Yeah. He started with the name of our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam two times. Yeah. The third, uh, the say, the, the dear one and the best of the creation. Yes. So I'd like to know, is there any proof that our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the best of the creation in the Quran? Or Excellent. So in terms of saying Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we actually had a halaqa about mentioning Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The conclusion we came to is that it is only compulsory in one situation, and that is in the last tashahud of Salah. That is the only time sending Salah and Salam is compulsory upon the Messenger of Allah And all other times it is highly recommended. And that is why Imam Nawawi Rahimahullah doesn't mention Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Number two, in terms of him using Khalil, uh, you know, the one dear to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, this is a more appropriate term. So you'll notice that a lot of people refer to the Messenger of Allah as the Habib of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. While this is true in meaning, there's no actual verse in the Quran or Hadith that says that I am the Habib of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Right? But rather, the term that is used is that Allah took me and Ibrahim as a Khalil. So Khalil is a higher level than Habib. And this is why Imam Anawi rahimahullah uses the term Khalil over here, the dear one, rather than the beloved one. Because the Khalil is actually established in the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then the third point that you mentioned, that he is the best of creation, then the Prophet says that I am the Sayyid, of Bani Adam, that I am the master of Bani Adam. And this would make him the best of creation. That is the only way he would become master. Wallahu ta'ala Adam. Last question. So my question is, uh, of these categories, the three categories of the hadith, which ones can be used as supporting evidence? And so if you have a gap in the chain of generation, that makes it, it can't be weak, it can be very weak for Right. So if there's a, a gap in the chain of narration, then it automatically goes to very weak until we find supporting evidence. If we find supporting evidence, then you look at the supporting evidence and this will either make the hadith weak or can possibly make it to Hassan li ghayrihi. Now even this concept of Hassan li ghayrihi, the scholars differed. Is Hassan li ghayrihi actually a category of Hassan or is it still a category from the da'if itself? So now leaving that ikhtilaf inside, they said that if you have a narration that has um, all authentic narrators in it, but some of them have weak memories. And then you have a chain of narration that has like, uh, I guess, not liars in it. Even if those are all weak narrators as well, you can use these two hadith together and together they will become Hassan li ghayrihi. But this is like, a, 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 you know, something that's debated in mustalah. It's beyond the, the scope of our discussion today. We'll discuss it later on. Wallahu ta'ala alam.